Amen. Thank you. Our passage this morning is 1 Peter 4, verse 7. This will be my first time to preach one verse that I can think of. Usually we do long passages, so if you'll turn there. The reason behind this one verse is that this uh, fall we went through 1 Peter in our small groups, and I just remember coming to this verse and it really haunting me, uh, just sticking in my heart and my mind afterwards. Um, not that I've figured it all out or not that I have any uh, corner on the application of it, but I hope together we'll understand what Peter is encouraging us to do uh, in this verse. And just to give you some backdrop to this verse, um, Peter is talking now about how Christ suffered. And in, the, in the first six verses, he explains that because Christ suffered and we are in Christ, we have suffered and have raised with Christ. So we're much like what Paul says, we are new creations. And then this verse is sort of a hinge, because then right at the end of the verse, he talks about loving one another and fellowship as a community, loving each other here at Grace, loving each other in our culture, in our city, in our world. But this one verse sort of serves as a hinge, and here's what it says, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Let's pray. Father, we are people who are inebriated on culture, on our dreams, on our fantasies, on our sin, Lord, even on our righteousness. Forgive us, Lord, that we are not sober-minded people. I think we're scared to come to that place where we rest in you alone. So I pray this morning, as we think about a new year, a new beginning, that we would see the hope of the gospel we could live lives that are sober-minded in you. In your name we pray. Amen. Almost everybody in this room had a very bad football week. Almost everybody. We do have some Clemson fans, I will warn you up front, uh, both up front time-wise and geographically. The rest of us, I'm a Sooner grad, if you don't know, we had a really bad game. OSU, I know I've talked to several of you. It's a hard time. We didn't expect this, did we? We thought we'd Start the new year on a high, and we didn't. Uh, what's funny about these games, I find it funny, uh, are the way people dress up. I kept looking for um, people I knew from church as I watched the OSU game, the painted faces. Are anybody in here painting face people or painting uh, other body parts? Anyone? Nobody? McConnell? If you were into football, you would be. Shane raised his hand. Yeah, if you were. <laughs> right. So, and you... You see these people, and you're just thinking the time and the energy that they've gone into to, to coordinate a word with like 10 different people, and their shirts are off, and it's below freezing. And, and it's an absurd thing, but if I have this really sick enjoyment of seeing those same people when they finally realize their team has lost. You know that look on their face? It's like they're just standing there, and it's like you look absurd. They need to sell a kit that you could immediately kind of get back to normal street clothes as soon as you knew the game was over, but they don't sell those kits. And so here are these people just standing there looking so silly. Okay, what does that have to do with this sermon? I don't know. It just feels comfortable to remind ourselves that even though we lost, at least we weren't as foolish as some people. Um, it's this. There's something sobering about the reality when your team is losing, that you have placed all of your hope in something that can't satisfy. 
in this passage, Peter is saying, what is your hope in? The title of this sermon is, what is your goal? And my hope for all of us is that we would be sober-minded this season, as we think in in this year, that we would find our entire hope in Christ. And and just like the lights come on in the football game, so to speak, when the score becomes what it is, when the when the other team rushes the field and the, other, the people wearing the absurd clothing finally realize the reality of the situation. Christians, we have a reality, and we have won. And now we can actually live in light of that winning, sober-mindedly. Right? We can live self-controlled lives. We can live lives that, and we're, and we're going to unpack those two words, but this idea that you, we get it, we understand reality, and now we can act accordingly. And so we're going to look at three things. We're going to spend a few minutes on just what does this sober-mindedness look like? And then we're going to look at the two ways Peter tells us to go about getting there. Um, The goal will be number two, and finally the uh, method number three. So what is this sober-mindedness? I haven't looked at, we haven't jumped into Greek very often, but it's really fun when you can. And there are two words for sober-minded. The first word is actually the word for self-controlled in our passage. It's sophroneo. And it means to be prudent, to focus on self-control, uh, or with focus on self-control, being reasonable, sensible, serious, keeping one's head. Uh, in Mark and in Luke, you have a passage where a demon-possessed man, was uh, all the demons were sent off into the swine, and, and he was sitting there, and the crowd found him in his right mind. He was sane. In Romans 12.3, you know Romans 12.1 and 2, therefore in view of God's mercy, right? Uh, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Well, in verse 3, Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say, to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you should or than you ought, but to think with sober judgment. Which is interesting, because this is the word for self-control, but in some places it has that meaning of sober-mindedness. But being having a real view of yourself, a right view of yourself, right? Um, also, this verse is used in Titus 2 6, this word, excuse me, uh, where Paul says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self controlled. Okay, the second word, nepho, nepho means well balanced, self controlled. So there's this kind of overlap, right? But first uh, Thessalonians 5 6 and 8, Paul says, Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. And then a verse later he says, but since we belong to the day, the light is on, we know where we belong, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So it's the spiritual posture of being aware of reality. And in our own letter, 1 Peter, he uses the, one of these, he uses this second word twice, this for sober. In 1 Peter 1.13 he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And finally, in 5.8, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. In other words, what Peter is saying, and what Paul has said before him, is there is a tendency in all of us to be asleep, to be inebriated, to just be kind of, lost in la-la land, if you will, just drifting through life. But what makes it particularly strange is that you cannot tell it. You can't look at someone like with uh, physical drunkenness 
where you can clearly see the person can't walk down the line or whatever the test is. In this situation, you can't tell. The person who might be spiritually drunk might be to work early, might work harder than everybody else, might dress nicer than you, talk nicer than you. So the question then we have to ask is, what is this sober-mindedness and what is this opposite that Peter is pointing to? And are we um, guilty of this? Um, Going back to the fan, just think about, again, that sense of just, my team's losing. And here I am, dressed up like a dog or whatever. I'm not going to choose any of our mascots in this room. You know, I've got a nose and ears flopping down. Is there a mascot that's like a dog like that? Anyway, I just don't want to offend anybody, especially the Tigers. Or um, imagine the, uh, the proverbial teenage or college party. You're not supposed to be drinking, and, and everyone's having their great time, and the lights go on. The cops are here. What does everybody do? None of you know this, but everybody runs. Everybody throws their cups. Everybody wakes up to reality, right? Are you awake to reality now? Are you sober-minded now? Are you aware of, of the reality of our world that we live in, the supernatural reality, now? Um, and I think most of us would have to be honest and say no. How can we tell? It was, I think, Shane, you said this earlier before. The, what are your goals? What are the things that you're using to change you? What are you looking toward? Many of you in this room have New Year's resolutions. Probably most of us have become cynical enough to go, I don't do that anymore. I don't use, I don't do resolutions anymore. Do any of you have these resolutions? Health, scheduling, goals? Good things. Please hear me. Good things. Until we think that will complete me. That goal realized will save me. So we're moving now into point number two. What is the goal? What does Peter say is the reason why we should be sober-minded? Why we should be self-controlled? Why we should be aware of reality? He says this, the end of all things is at hand. Um, that, and I, I spent some time trying to understand the Greek there because if, if you're not careful, it almost sounds like the Truman Show. I think as Christians, the way we view the end times is like when Truman, you remember the story? He's trying to escape this city, this, this town where everybody is kind of controlled. He doesn't know what's going on. And he's on the water and he just hits the wall. Remember that? Anybody remember that? And he just realizes this has all been fake. It's all been a farce. That's probably, if we're honest, our view of heaven. Like we're just living this world out here and then someday we're just going to come across the end. It's, there's the end. It's near. Okay, because the end's coming near, let's get it together. That's what Peter's telling us. I think the better way to understand it is the Greek word is telos, which means goal. That's where we get the word telescope. Think about more like a ship, and they're looking for the land, the far country. And it gets closer, and someone finally yells, land ho! I don't know why. Anyone can fill me in later. I think maybe I'll, Jacob, you'll tell me sometime why the maritime language for finding land is land ho! But everybody rushes to the edge of the boat to look at the shoreline getting closer. It's the goal. It's what we've been aiming for. It's that this voyage is drawing to an end. And so the question for us is, what is your goal? As Christians, if you are regenerated, you're a Christian, the Spirit dwells in you, is your passion, is your goal, heaven? And I'm afraid in American Christianity, heaven 
and the daily Christian life have been somehow separated. It's been kind of like there, there's that, and then there's just do everything else as nicely as you can and don't be really a big jerk and you'll be fine. But the Bible makes it clear. One, one author, I recommend this book, if you want to read Eschatology, which is the study of end times, The Bible and the Future by Anthony Hukema. H-O-E-K, for those of you that are writing it down. H-O-E-K-E-M-A, phenomenal book. And he says, look, the Bible from first until last, every book is eschatology. The whole thing is aimed at reversing the curse that started in the garden. And we are longing for the final and full reversal of that problem of sin. And the, the, if you study Christian, Christians throughout history, the ones that are the giants of the faith are more aware of their own need of a Savior than anyone else. And so, do you long for heaven? Um, what, what, how does that play out? Do you, are you thinking heaven will rescue you? Or do you have that mindset? Have you, have you heard the term, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good? Have you ever heard that? Are you sort of afraid of being that person? I don't want to be that person. I think C.S. Lewis has a little bit of a better way of saying it. Aim at heaven, and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. And so scripturally speaking, if we're not longing for heaven and seeing it rightly as the rescue and the redemption of all things, then really our own life makes no sense. And you will be living insanely. If you're trying to live your life right now with the complete, you're a Christian, I'm talking to Christians right now. You believe that Jesus has rescued you. You believe that you have indwelling sin. And you believe that your hope is heaven. But you, when you think about your daily life, there is no connection between the two. That's like the definition of insanity. You're completely insane. There's no devil. There's no heart, flesh, sin that you're dealing with. There's no redemptive goals to anything. What are you doing? What are we doing? And yet everyone in this room, if we're honest, on some level is guilty of this. So the goal then, what, what Peter is saying is, that this telos, this goal, is nearing. And the actual, the verb form for nearing, it's, it's a perfect verb, which has a past tense with a present and future implication. You can ask Thomas all this later, not the Thomas from CrossFit, but the Thomas that does the, they always, it's, I'm sorry, you know, I keep pointing at people. <clears throat> Thomas Carlson is a linguist, I think, we, we call him and he would know. Um, but it, this weird word about, it's coming closer. It's, it's nearing, but this perfect tense means it's already present. In fact, it's past. And so what Peter's doing is he's doing what theologians have called the already and the not yet. It's something that it's already present in our midst, but we don't yet fully have it. And that's the goal I want you to grasp, is that as Christians, heaven has broken in and started to change us now. And so everything that we do now in our lives, we should be seeking to connect to the future reality of the second coming of Christ. I, think, I don't know if this is a perfect illustration, but I love the wedding story at Cana because there is a real party, a fun party that everyone in this room would love to be at, and they're, they're celebrating, and they ran out of celebration wine, and, and Mary turns to Jesus and says, Hey, let's get some more wine here. Knowing that he's kind of amazing and powerful. And he says something kind of rude. He says, woman, my time has not yet come. And everybody's like, whoa. You're going to talk to your mom like that? 
Um, and it's not so much that he's saying woman. That's kind of a, obviously it's a cut down in our present day. But he's just simply saying, you really don't know what the wine represents. And that I will be the final provider of the wine, the blood of Christ. But yet he provides it anyway, and they are blessed by it. He turns the water into wine, and the party gets even better. And so it's important to understand, Jesus and Christianity is good and fun. In the sense that all the things you like about this life are because of the reality of the kingdom of God. Breaking in. Justice. Mercy. Love. Kindness. Nice aesthetic things. A fun party. A good drink. All the things that you love used in their appropriate manner, are gifts from God breaking in from heaven. And we have been so duped to think that anything fun must not be of heaven that we really have had to sort of in our theology separate the two. But if we can this new year and this day begin to go, wait a minute, Jesus loves me. And Jesus is good and fun and has created this amazing earth and this amazing world and all the things we love to do and I can pursue these things in Christ, I can be sane, I can be sober-minded. Now, that doesn't mean you'll pursue everything you want to do. That means you go to Christ as you think about the pursuits he has for you. Is that your view of life? Is that your worldview? Or are you, in your mind, sort of living a life that you sort of secretly think is displeasing to God, even if it's not? Now, let me be clear. Sin displeases God. So if you're like, secretly looking at pornography, and, and you, yeah, that's bad, don't do that. But if you think your job doesn't really please God, but it's a legitimate, great job, then your job and my job is to go, how do I change my view of this to realize this is actually bringing glory to God, even if I don't take offense at this, a trash man. I don't know why I always go to trash men. But that, that's a good thing. We need, in heaven, we'll probably have more trash men than preachers. Because we won't need preachers anymore. But we still might have someone take out the trash. I don't know. You can do your own study of that. Dental hygienists, ophthalmologists, optometrists, every job, everything we have needs to be seen in light of a gift from God and done for the glory of God. And that's where sobriety begins to come in. But more than that, not just your own job, your whole life begins to be aimed at Christ. That's the way, to again, pick up on Lewis. That's his point. You're aiming at heaven, and if everything you're doing has that in view, you'll get earth thrown in. But if all we're doing is honing in on this world, ignoring heaven, you'll get neither. So, how do we do it? What's the method? This is probably why this verse jumped out so strongly to me. The end of all things is at hand. Again, the way I would interpret that is the goal that we've been aiming for has begun. It's, it's not only near, but it's begun, right? Therefore, live self-controlled and sober-minded. But he said, but the ESV translated, for the sake of your prayers. And I just remember thinking, what? So the reason we do it is for our prayer? And the answer is, is I think, twofold. The reason for everything we've said right now thus far is so we'll pray better. But I also believe what he's saying is that your prayer will actually transform your ability to do what we've been talking about thus far. So prayer. Are you into dependent prayer? Uh, prayer of faith is an instrument which releases the mighty acts of the Holy Spirit. Is that your view and is that your goal? Do you see yourself as a redeemed person longing to release the kingdom of heaven in your midst? 
through prayer, through His Spirit changing you. In John 14.12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will He do, because I'm going to the Father. Listen to this. Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it. What are you asking for? I mean, I am so often convicted that my prayers are so boring. Are you with me? If you're not, thank you. (laughs) Honestly, we need prayer warriors. But we have been given this Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts. We've been given a mission. We've been told that the far country is coming ever closely, and all we care about is getting over our current cold or something like that. Pray for that, but pray for redemption. Pray for um, are we praying for our government? I mean, I love the pastoral prayer, Brent, you did today, and, and the intercessory prayer we have every week, because these men are praying for the, for the nation, for the world, for the congregation, for spiritual needs, for physical needs. Are we doing that? But not because it's some sort of a law, but because we're depend, living a life dependent on the Father. Are you walking in that dependency? A TV show that we like to watch at our house is Shark Tank. It's a great show. Uh, and one of the, there's just this interesting moment that happened. Anybody familiar with Shark Tank? There's like five investors. They change them out a few ways. Um, Mark Cuban, Mr. Wonderful. I won't go all their names. And then you have the investor or investors who present. And, and it's fun to kind of laugh at the ideas and wonder if it's a good investment. But then they get, some of them get an offer. And that's kind of exciting. And then there's this moment where they have to decide, especially if there's more than one investor or more than one inventor or entrepreneur deciding are we going to go with this person or that person or that person? And one of the things that we've noticed is you'll have these two people standing there, smiling. They've heard several offers. What are you going to do? And they sometimes they just kind of look at each other and go like this. Barbara. You know, you're like, how did you know the other person thought Barbara or thought Mark Cuban? And we've often wondered, did they talk about it ahead of time? And the only thing I can come up with is that these two people have been working so closely that they know each other so well that it just takes a little movement of the lips. That's all it takes. All right. That's how I envision partnership with the Father. Psychologists tell us about self-talk. I believe in self-talk. It doesn't take long to realize. Man, my mind is constantly talking to myself, constantly rehearsing things, constantly saying things. And right or wrong, good or bad, it is helpful, by the way, to learn about that. But I really think prayer ought to replace that. I really do. The Spirit dwells in me. I can begin talking to my Father, completely cleansed by the blood of Christ, about any and every problem that I have at any moment. That doesn't mean I have to go about doing it. I don't want to create this, like, you have to do this all the time, but this sense of freedom in that. You get the sense that Jesus did that with every little thing. He goes away and prays all night before coming back and choosing the 12. Whom most of us would have been like, I, I know the 12. I know who you want. But he went ahead and prayed all night for that, to come and do what he sort of knew. I, I, I have wondered if it's because he wanted to go, Judas? Are you sure? <laughs> um, are we in that kind of communion with the Father? And the answer is, we should be, we want to be, but we struggle. Puritan Thomas Goodwin says this. He says, The fallen nature is actually allergic to God. 
and never wants to get too close to Him. Thus, our fallen nature constantly pulls us away from prayer. So what, how do you pray? How do you start? My encouragement is to start by going, I don't want to. That is a great beginning prayer. Dear Jesus, the last place I want to be is right here praying to you. That sounds cynical. I'm not trying to be cynical. I'm being honest. Because I think there's two problems we have. We either just don't pray because we don't feel like it, or we plug right into the prayer we think we should be praying where we have not been honest before the Father. And why do we want to be honest? Because we need the Spirit to change our heart. We need to recognize the fact that as Christians, we live out of shame and guilt because we have not believed freshly on that given day, on any given day, that the Gospel is true. That Jesus loves me. That my identity is not in what I've done or not what I've left undone or the shame that I feel, but my identity is 100% in Jesus Christ and His righteousness. And so I can pray boldly, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, right now, the Gospel does not sound like music to me. Will you open my eyes to the beauty of the Gospel? And He will answer that prayer. That is a great beginning prayer. Now, don't get me wrong. If you feel like praying and you're ready to charge in, but repentance has to be a part of it somewhere. Lord, I I wander from you. Lord, my hope is put in so many other things. Will you reshape who, who you are making me to be? Will you change the affections of my heart? I am drawn to so much other than you, Jesus. That needs to be the heart of prayer. I think not to do that, to just start plugging away what you think you should be praying creates anxiety. And of course, in Philippians 4, 6, we have Paul tell us, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He is encouraging you in the, in the midst of anxiety, which means, I don't trust you, God. I'm anxious because I don't believe in you right now, practically speaking. It's not seeking into my heart that you will take care of my every need. Yet he says, plunge in anyway in prayer and trust the Lord and give your life to him in that moment. Are we praying that way? Are we living that way? Is that even your goal? I really believe, church, that we want to be a praying church. And I think we are a church not just grace, but really modern-day Protestantism, we are a church that is bent on getting things done our way. Building the building, getting the funds, teaching the Bible. We do a lot of great things. One of the hardest things for me to do, I think for Presbyterians to do, I think for achievable, you know, type A people to do, is to stay, this is to come on their knees and say, Jesus, I need help. I think the reason we don't do it is because we don't think we need help you need help. Trust me, I can see you. We need help. I want to finish with this quote by Richard Loveless. He has a book called Dynamics of Spiritual Life. Some of us are reading that. I highly recommend that book. He gives you a history of revival and renewal, and then he breaks into the primary, uh, the primary conditions of renewal in the church, justification by faith, believing the gospel, sanctification by faith, understanding the spiritual warfare, But he moves into secondary elements, and prayer is one of them, and he says this, if all regenerate church members in Western Christendom, it gets easier, I promise, were to intercede daily simply for the most obvious spiritual concerns visible in their homes, their workplaces, 
their local churches and denominations, their nations and the world. I was convicted of just that first one, the home. As a parent, how quickly do I run to parent or not parent well instead of running to Jesus? Your workplace, your local church, your denomination, he says. If we did that daily in prayer, the world and for the total mission of the body of Christ within, for the transformation which would result, he says, then the transformation which would result would be incalculable. Not only would God certainly change those institutions in response to prayer, our homes, our work, our denomination, our church. He goes on to say we have Christ's word that if we ask, he will do more than we ask or think. But the church's comprehension of its task would attain an unprecedented sharpness of focus. So if you pray these prayers, not only would the change come, but our focus would change, he says. We would be more sharp, more sober, more alert to what's going on around us. Perhaps much of our prayer now, and I love the way he ends this, perhaps much of our prayer now should simply be for God to pour out such a spirit of prayer and supplication in the hearts of his people. Do you hear how he ended that? He didn't say, so get to it. He said, so let's do this. And here's the application of this entire sermon. I'm going to give two. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, if you're not certain that Christ is is your Savior, I beg you to pray that today. To pray that you would just rest in Jesus. I love the assurance of pardon. I chose to put it in there. From Matthew, you know, my, my burden is easy, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus is saying rest. Are you anxious? Are you burdened? Is life not working the way you planned it out? It's because you're doing it apart from Jesus. And if you are a believer here today, then I have a feeling you experience a lot of those same problems because we live out of unbelief. And here's the application. How do you become sober-minded? How do you change the focus from earthly-mindedness to heavenly-mindedness, right? How do you increase in prayer? One application, if you all do this, I really believe we'll see a major change. Ask the Lord to give you a new affection. Pray. Lord, I don't want this stuff or help me because I struggle in wanting this stuff. Change my heart, oh Jesus. Help me to even want to pray. Help me to even think about you on a daily basis. Help me to even consider that you might be the answer to my problems when I face the problems in my life. So listen to the last thing he says. Perhaps much of our prayer now should simply be for God to pour out such a spirit of prayer and supplication in the hearts of his people. Can we pray that? Lord, send your spirit. Give us renewed affection. That we would long for you, Jesus. Christians, trying to change yourself is useless. It's useless. Non-Christians, trying to change yourself is useless. We all need Jesus. That's the only way to sanity. That's the only way to sober-minded. Heavenly Father, you've sent your Son to redeem the lost, of which all of us have been part of. Your Spirit dwells in us now. Our eyes have been opened. But yet, Lord, we struggle with unbelief. And so much of the time, our unbelief is centered on the fact that we don't know that you're the one that changes us. Will you forgive us for thinking that we should get better before we come to you? 
teach us to come to you as we are running away. Lord, literally, as we're running from you to cry out, Jesus, help. That is how good you are. And we pray that you would draw near. Holy Spirit, I pray for every person in this room to know you, to walk with you, to feel your peace, to lay their burdens down. But Lord, it requires dying. You died for us, and now we have to die to all of our ambitions that are apart from you. Teach us to rest in you, Lord. Amen.